incarnation of William Mooston Marston's iconic symbol of female empowerment, Wonder Woman, first came to the screen on Saturday the 1st of July 1978, with an episode entitled The Man Who Could Move the World. This episode, written by Judy Burns, focused on a telekinetic Japanese soldier seeking revenge on Wonder Woman for a 35-year-old grievance, and it aired on BBC One at 6pm as a stand-in for Doctor Who, which was on its summer holidays. What? What's that lovely listener? This doesn't jibe with your knowledge? Well, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. The first episode of Wonder Woman wasn't The Man Who Could Move the World, and it didn't debut in July of 1978. In actuality, Wonder Woman made her debut as a 1974 TV pilot starring Kathy Lee Crosby as Wonder Woman. After this flopped, a more comics-accurate version set in World War II appeared on television as the new original Wonder Woman, which is quite an unwieldy title, on November 7th, 1975. Yes, you are correct, lovely listener. All of this is true, unlike my opening statement. Unless you lived in Decepted Isle, which never saw the World War II episodes of the series until the show went into repeats on cable station Sky One, and even then we had to wait until the 1990s before they were broadcast. Over here, Wonder Woman, losing the US appellation of The New Adventures Of, debuted with the third episode of Season 2, then updated to be the present day, present at that point being 1977. The second season's feature-length intro, explaining how Wonder Woman is around in World War II and yet still looked youthful and gorgeous in 1977, was left until last, where it aired as a TV movie on the 17th of June 1980. Confused? Well, that's just how Auntie Beeb did it back in the day. In those pre-internet days of yore, no one could tell them that they were wrong. Nevertheless, the show was a hit, providing the BBC with another ratings-grabbing US import and making a star out of actress Linda Carter, who appeared in three BBC TV specials and, like David Soule before her and Bruce Willis afterwards, had a moderately successful singing career on the back of her hit show. The World War II pilot episode, though, was written and developed for television by Stanley Ralph Ross and directed by Leonard Horne. This was a portent of doom, given Ross's involvement with the Batman TV show of the 60s. Sure, he wrote many of the best episodes, but there was a stench of camp to Batman that Wonder Woman tried, thankfully, to avoid. It didn't always succeed. The pilot film opens with black and white footage of World War II before segueing rather wonderfully into the title sequence everybody remembers. Here it is. In this dark summer of 1942, the onslaught of the Third Reich continues under the leadership of this indecent and corrupt man. His overtrained and blindly obedient army continues to ravish what is left of free Europe, while Il Duce grasps for his place as this wicked Axis tries to dominate the world. President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill gather the Allies in defense of the free world. The third Axis power plunders across the Pacific. Mankind is being threatened by these despicable villains. The only hope for freedom and democracy is... Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman, 
Crosby pilot and the later TV adaptation of The Incredible Hulk, this opening makes it quite plain this is a comic come to life. The opening credits are comic panels, complete with the dots that the printing process left on the page, and each scene has a caption box explaining where the scene is taking place. The pilot opens with two Nazi soldiers planning a during raid on a Brooklyn naval yard. The Allies have apparently developed a system that can pinpoint targets with deadly accuracy, and the Nazis need this knocked out. They have a double agent in Washington working on stealing the plans for this device. One German agent is to be sent to destroy the target, and this mission is a vital import to the Nazi war effort. This is a good setup, handled well, once we get past the comedy accents the actors portraying the Nazi commanders have all adopted. Perhaps it's years of watching the BBC comedy series Allo Allo all about the French resistance, but these kinds of comedy Germans just don't fly much anymore. Diminutive comedy actor Henry Gibson is also here as a double agent working for the Allies. On the one hand, this is a mistake. Gibson always portrays inept and clumsy morons and immediately had me rolling my eyes at his mere presence. On the other hand, Gibson would be a perfect double agent. He's so crap, nobody would seriously think he was any kind of threat. Gibson manages to get a message on a carrier pigeon to Washington, D.C., a scene which prompted the first unintentional guffaw. Gibson attaches the note to an obvious dummy, but when the shot cuts back from a close-up, the pigeon is real. It's such a terrible edit, with no effort made to conceal the dummy pigeon, I couldn't help but laugh. Lyle Wagoner, arguably the stiffest actor to ever appear in a major American TV series, and that's a hotly contested title, is Steve Trevor, and he receives word on the plans from Henry Gibson. Trevor is dispatched to shoot the plane down before it enters US airspace. Wagner seems like a great guy, but he's as rigid as an ironing board, with about as much personality, and he doesn't seem to notice his secretary throwing herself at him at every available opportunity, because she is a Nazi double agent. I've had a few thoughts about Steve Trevor not noticing beautiful women throwing themselves at him, and his contrived conversations about women with his superior offer seem very much like somebody covering up some deep, dark secret. The secretary contacts the Nazi commander to tell him the plan has been uncovered and we're already into double and triple cross plotting that has the potential to be high farce. This isn't helped in the scene where Gibson is tossed a packet of cigarettes by the Nazi commander, drops them and then looks around to see if the scene is to be cut and retook. When no such indication is given from the director, Gibson continues with the scene, replete with a comedy German accent that is worse, if that's possible, than the other actors. Steve then exposits that his flight path will take him over the Bermuda Triangle, an area of great secrecy and intrigue. Both men then encounter each other, and, rather oddly, the pilot then vacillates between black and white and colour stock footage of an aeronautic dogfight. Even weirder, what looks like colourised footage is thrown in. 
This is very disconcerting when watching it, as it gives the impression that this is a documentary, but it's intercut quite clumsily with footage of the actors gurning unconvincingly as they try to maintain the illusion they are ace combat pilots. As with all TV shows of this era, the stock is rather shoddy, changing planes and backgrounds frequently, and the editors try to cover this with a series of blipvert-like quick cuts before the planes shoot each other down and explode. Despite both planes being engulfed in flame, the same footage, used twice, just flipped to make it look like two planes flying in opposite directions, both men survive and deploy their chutes. In mid-air, the German pilot shoots Steve before falling into a pool of sharks. Steve is really, really stupid here. He sees the Nazi pilot first, but then gives him a cheery thumbs up like this is all a game. Steve should have shot the guy, but in some silly attempt at showing what a decent guy he is, we have Steve doing his best Fonzie impression with a goofy grin on his face. How the hell did this guy become an ace fighter pilot? Anyway, with the Nazi eaten by sharks, Steve's parachute is found by two incredibly attractive girls in very short chiffon dresses who are just frolicking happily in the sea. They find Steve's body and whisk him away to the hospital. This is our first look at Princess Diana, played by Linda Carter, and the star of our show. It's a good scene introducing Paradise Island, and that the woman there have never so much seen a man, let alone touched one. There's also some great visual storytelling that demonstrates Diana's abilities. Diana picks Steve up with no visible strain, and then sets off down the beach at a run, easily carrying his body. Cloris Leachman is then introduced as Queen Hippolyta. Leachman's delivery is very odd. Like a bad caricature of William Shatner, she pauses in weird places, like she's misplaced her script and needs to find the next word. Unlike Shatner, though, she's not a compelling enough performer to pull this off, and it comes across as stilted and unnatural. Leachman has an extensive list of credits and an impressive career, but Linda Carter is better in this scene than Leachman is, conveying innocence and naivete, but also a desire to learn and be open-minded without it ever being eye-rolling or saccharine. The script and Leachman are not subtle about the island being a paradise due to the absence of men, but Diana is open to the idea that not all men are scumbags. Hippolyta is having none of it, and tells Diana she was raised to lead, not to bow and scrape to any man. Diana is compelled to visit Steve, though, just as the Doctor has given Steve a potion of special serum, arguably one of the funniest lines in the show. The Doctor then interrogates Steve, who gives a really simplistic account of World War II. Diana is intrigued. It should be pointed out that the series hasn't yet told us Diana's name. Hippolyta has called her only daughter, so the show is assuming that the audience is familiar enough with her to not bother introducing her, which seems quite lazy. Still, Diana feels something for Steve, and we get another scene where Leachman overreacts to everything and seems to think that parenting works on the because-I-said-so principle. She decides to organise a tournament to decide which Amazon should be dispatched to the man's world to escort Steve back, but then they are to return. This, again, seemed very contrived and silly. If the whole job of an Amazon was to just take Steve back and drop him off, surely anyone could have done it. Anyway, Diana is forbidden from entering and decides to leave for the summer retreat. One of the more notable things about this scene is that it demonstrates that Hippolyta must have had a really bad birth with Diana, as Carter is significantly bigger than Leachman. Carter is broader, more statuesque, more womanly in her curves and her figure. Leachman's really, really tiny. Of course, in the comics, Diana is carved from clay and given life from the gods, but this is never mentioned in the show itself. With the ground rules set, the tournament takes place. Fortunately, all the Amazons are masked, as per Amazon tradition, and so it comes as no real surprise when Diana emerges as Victor. 
The tournament montage is well done. After all, men love watching nubile young women running and jumping in short skirts, and there's a genuinely funny gag in that the scores are written in Roman numerals. I did have to wonder, though, do they perform this ritual every time somebody just needs escorting home after a drunken night out? The bullets and bracelet contest also seems to be genuinely dangerous, given that the task is a simple delivery job. The bullets and bracelets contest actually has opposing Amazons point guns at each other's head and shoot them, with the Amazons using their bracelets to deflect the bullets harmlessly. The victor is the one that doesn't get shot. I suppose it adds to the danger level of the contest, if nothing else. Leishman softens up from this point when Diana reveals that it is she who has won the tournament and she is bequeathed with the standard Wonder Woman outfit. Carter, it has to be said, fills the costume well, although I prefer the skirt, which Hippolyta says can be discarded if it proves too cumbersome, to the granny panties underneath. Either the producers or Carter herself must have decided that the skirt didn't work for whatever reason, because she takes it off here and never wears it again throughout the running time of the pilot movie. There's some lip service given to why it's basically an American flag, the colours of freedom, but there's no denying that this is as good a representation of a comics costume that has ever been seen on TV up to this point, and for a number of years afterwards. It's also strange how it looks neither camp nor silly when Carter wears it. The costume also serves a double function in the pilot, as it is revealed that without the belt, Wonder Woman will become an ordinary mortal away from Paradise Island. This is a neat little Achilles heel that is not followed up on in the film that follows, although maybe they're just setting up a weakness for the series. In full adherence to the comic strip, we even have the invisible plane, which sadly does not work as well as the costume in live action, coming across as more the transparent plane. Wonder Woman then drops Steve at the hospital in a genuinely funny scene where she strides confidently into the ward and just drops him off. Carter plays this wonderfully, no pun intended, her colourful costume contrasting against the drab browns and whites of the hospital magnificently, and her attitude and confident demeanour go some way to really selling the moment. Can I help you, please? Yes, I would like to get this patient admitted. I just fill out these forms and triplicate. You don't understand. He's quite ill and needs immediate attention. Thank you. Hey. This is Major Steve Trevor. He's very ill. Major Steve Trevor? But he's dead. Who are you? I'm his personal nurse. Take good care of him. I'm going to leave my patient in your hands. Thank you. then ventures into the outside world, where she quickly gathers a following, and realises she needs proper clothes, but has no money. The fish-out-of-water gags are well done, and Carter is brilliant in these scenes. Before Carter can go about getting some money and some proper clothes, we follow this up with another standard superhero foils some crime scene that every single one of these superhero movies must at least attempt. Here, Wonder Woman foils a robbery in spectacular fashion, and Carter delivers the line, this is rather rude, really well. However, it's her incredulity that she'll have to fill out a few forms after stopping the robbery that really sells the moment. It's legitimately funny and charming. Here's a clip. Excuse me, but that's very rude. Get out of here, broad. It's also dangerous. Please put those guns down. You could hurt people. Shoot her, Nunzio. Me? I never shot a woman before, except in self-defense. Here. 
Officer, those men robbed our bank. You say these men robbed your bank? Yes. And uh, this wonderful woman in the bathing suit stopped them. Okay, stand back, stand back. Now, what's your story, lady? Story? Well, I know a few myths, but... Oh, a joker, huh? Okay, suppose we start with your name. Wonder Woman. Sure. That's the last name, Woman. First name, Wonder, right? Right. Hey, Mike, the guy in the back of the truck, he's starting to stir. Stay right where you are, Wonder. You caught the robbers, saved the money, you're going to have to fill out forms. We're going to need your statement. They steal money, and I have to fill out forms. What a country this is. Red Buttons then shows up playing Ashley Norman. He witnesses the entire thing and offers Wonder Woman a gig. Red Buttons is apparently a big deal as he's a special guest star, although I don't really have any clue who he is or why he's important. Here's a clip of him anyway. You who lady? Lady? Yes, you lady. What is it? Have you got a second lady? How, how, how would you like to accumulate a bundle of money? Well, I don't rob banks. Rob banks? Who needs to? Not with that bit you have with the bullets in her bracelets. Sensational! I could make a star out of you, lady. You play your cards right. Ashley Norman. Dogs, dwarfs, and daredevils? What does that mean? I'm a theatrical agent. Oh, well, I'm not a theatrical performer. Are you kidding? You are the greatest. You do that trick on stage with the bullets and the bracelets. You'll make people forget about Harlow and Grable. Why, Betty Grable looks like a boy compared to you. Just a minute. If I do this bullet trick, what do I get? Money. Well, apparently I do need money to survive here. And lots of it. Do you know that a good steak dinner costs over a dollar these days? It's disgusting. And what do you get out of this? 50%, sweetheart. Half the money? But I'm the one that's getting shot at. That's show business. Well... These moments are genuinely entertaining, and even though I normally find Buttons really irritating, he works very well in his role as a shyster and a huckster. Elsewhere, the Nazis are dispatching a second pilot to complete the job the first pilot failed in. Henry Gibson sends another carrier pigeon, by which I mean he sends the same carrier pigeon because it's the same footage from earlier on. Wonder Woman decides to take Red Buttons up on his offer to take to the stage to earn some cash. The Nazis get wind of this event and send an old woman to test out the bullets and bracelets theory with an old Tommy gun. This is another successfully comedic scene with some brilliant comedy timing as the old woman brings the machine gun out of her purse. The sped up footage of Wonder Woman deflecting the bullets is a tad campy, but it's nice to see Wonder Woman's mask slip ever so slightly. Not only does she blanch at the weapon, but she clearly notes there is something off about the old woman, and proves to be nobody's fool when Red Buttons tries to rip her off, mainly because Buttons is also a Nazi. You can't trust anybody nowadays. What's particularly notable and interesting about the scene is, although Wonder Woman is often portrayed as sweet and occasionally naive, she's not stupid, and is quite capable of turning the tables on people that think she is. Steve checks himself out of the hospital, but his stunt double is then stopped by the Nazis and taken away. Wonder Woman then checks in on him, wearing a nurse's uniform she's acquired from somewhere, and not only do we get the lovely sight of Linda Carter in a nurse's uniform, but we also get the first spin change of the series. This manoeuvre, which will be much imitated by schoolgirls across the world and by Superman in an episode of Lois and Clark, was a suggestion of Linda Carter herself when it was decided Wonder Woman needed a change scene, similar to Clark Kent disappearing into a phone booth. 
This first one is significantly less dramatic than it would later become, but it does the job. The main difference between this and the later iterations was the lack of a thunderclap, and Wonder Woman still has the clothes she changed out of in her hands after the transformation. Later on, they'll simply all disappear in favour of her appearing, dressed as Wonder Woman and ready for action. Meanwhile, traitorous secretary, Red Buttons, and that guy who worked with Bigfoot on the Six Million Dollar Man try to get Steve to spill what he knows. This scene is awful. It's campy when it should be dramatic, and there's no tension to Steve's kidnapping. These guys are inept, and as such there's no danger or drama. It would have been far better to have actually heightened some real tension here, by having these guys be a real and legitimate threat. Evil secretary just comes across as a bit ditzy, and red buttons couldn't be threatening, no matter how hard he tries. Wonder Woman then tracks Evil Secretary to Steve's office, and there's a really disappointing fight scene between the two, in which Evil Secretary holds her own against Wonder Woman just because she was a Nuremberg judo champ. For the most part, this is really poor, with the women both just bitch-slapping each other. Although there is a genuinely funny bit where the Evil Secretary tries to swing on a chandelier and it breaks and she falls on her ass. A much more satisfying moment is when Wonder Woman punches her down the hallway, With Evil Secretary caught and tied up, Wonder Woman uses the lasso of truth to learn that Steve will be killed at midnight exactly when the Navy Yard will be bombed. Even Wonder Woman can't be in two places at the same time. Wonder Woman then spells out to us the theme of the show. It's over, Marsha. You're through. You may have me, but the Third Reich will never be through. It will go on a thousand years. I heard the Greeks and the Romans say the same thing. You heard that? I may be older than I look. Now, what number do I call on this instrument to reach your apartment? Capital. 6732. We'll get even with you for this. My people will send more agents. No, the Nazis don't care about their women. They let you fend for yourself. And any civilization that does not recognize the female is doomed to destruction. Women are the wave of the future, and sisterhood is stronger than anything. And to think that Steve Trevor was fooled by you. I'm going to have to get accustomed to men, and devious women. Wonder Woman then picks up a phone and calls Red Buttons and Bigfoot's mate and tells them not to kill Steve, mimicking evil secretary's voice. Which is a skill I didn't know that she had, but okay, fair enough. With the silly man safe, Wonder Woman heads over to the Navy Yard in her invisible plane. Wonder Woman arrives and teaches the Nazi commander respect when he treats her as a lesser by punching his lights out. Using her incredible mimicry power again, Wonder Woman cons the Nazis into telling her the location of the submarine that will take the Nazis away upon completion of the mission. She then crashes the second Nazi plane, which she has commandeered, into the submarine. This scene is part comic and part drama. The plane Wonder Woman approaches is clearly a cardboard cutout, and completely different from the plane that Wonder Woman crashes into the sub. She drops the pilot off with the police and then goes to rescue Steve. It's really funny when Red Buttons fires his pistol at Wonder Woman, his resigned expression clearly showing he knows this won't work, and after mopping up the loose ends, Steve is freed, and apart from the epilogue that sets up the show, it's all over. The epilogue is a comedy beat, where Steve and his boss have employed a plain Jane secretary after the last one was evil. Given that he's employed Diana, and given that Linda Carter is prettier than any other person on this show, I can only assume that the general that employed her is either blind, stupid, or gay. 
ultimately though this pilot was pretty marvellous there's a lot to mock here but there's an earnestness to it that just can't be beat whilst there are elements that are silly it never quite falls over into outright camp the basic plot is ripped right from the comics with elements that are almost recreations of the origin stories from the original strips and it feels like a comic come to life something that won't really be achieved again until Superman the movie in 1978 and then Captain America in 2011 with her watery blue eyes, slightly pudgy face and stunning figure, Linda Carter certainly looks the part, but what is often overlooked is her sublime performance. She's naive but wise, pretty but certainly not dumb, and the living embodiment of the character. Even today, she's still on the shortlist as one of the best cast actors to ever play a superhero property. One of the interesting things about Wonder Woman is that she's a symbol for women, despite wearing little more than a bathing suit, and this is all down to Carter. She's so sweet in the role that men and women loved her. She's still a great role model for kids even today. Lyle Wagoner, by contrast, is very collie, gee whiz, and often willing to poke fun at himself, which is good, as I can only assume that his stiffness is a choice he made for the role. He's a good foil for Carter, and they work well together, but ultimately, he's very much a block of cardboard. I've had an interest in covering this Wonder Woman pilot for a while, and a number of people have asked for it, but there was an element of trepidation on my part, but I have to be honest, this was a pleasant surprise. There's a self-mocking err to it, and given that Stanley Ralph Ross was involved, I was expecting a retread of the Batman TV show, but this was such good fun, it completely won me over. It's charming, energetic, and at 75 minutes, it doesn't outstay its welcome, moving along at a pleasant and speedy pace. There's none of the slowness of other shows of the era, which was also a pleasant surprise. I did remember the Wonder Woman show as a kid. I did watch it religiously. But because this pilot was never shown as part of the BBC's erring, I don't think I'd ever seen it before I watched it for this show. But it comes highly recommended. with that other icon of 70s feminism, Jamie Summers, Wonder Woman found herself switching networks for her second season of adventures. Despite garnering respectable ratings for her freshman year, the ABC network dithered on a renewal for the show, allowing CBS to step in and poach it. CBS demanded a few changes before they signed on the dotted line, however. Some were cosmetic. Wonder Woman's costume underwent a slight redesign and ended up being sleeker and even more form-fitting than the original. And, during the hiatus, Carter had lost some of the puppy fat from her cheeks. The other change was more drastic. CBS didn't want the show to be set in World War II anymore, preferring a more contemporary feel. The opening credits of the second season opening episode, another 75-minute telefilm entitled The Return of Wonder Woman, was written by Stephen Candell and directed by Alan Crossland. There's no teaser this time, although the captions remain, informing us that we are somewhere over the Caribbean in 1977. Steve Trevor, looking remarkably youthful, is now a US government agent, and is aboard a private jet with two nuclear scientists and two nuclear engineers, leading the characters to deduce that Steve's problem is a nuclear project. Nothing gets past these guys. Steve exposits that there have been four major terrorist attacks on power lines and dams, destroying countries' entire power supplies, and Steve and his chums are flying to Latin America for a top-secret conference to decide if it will be a good home for a new nuclear power plant and if they could protect it. However, evil Dr. Solano has a hidden HQ in Washington and is watching the proceedings from his base, which is quite spartan apart from some typically 70s big computers with whirling reel-to-reel tapes. 
As the plane approaches the Devil's Triangle, Dr. Solano presses some buttons and the barman aboard the plane gasses the crew. He doesn't gas the member of the production team who seems to have caught himself in the shot, judging by how quickly he backs off stage. Nor does the cameraman do a good job of following the action. As Steve attacks the barman, the plywood bars holding up the set are clearly visible. In fact, this entire fight is very ineptly shot, as the actors clearly step off the set more than once. With the crew gassed, the plane disappears off Solano's screen and is headed, out of control, straight for Paradise Island. As in the previous telefilm, Diana and a friend are frolicking in the woods, again wearing very little, which is nice, and again Diana informs her mother of the incident. This time, however, the Amazons guide the plane in for a landing themselves rather than have it crash. Diana enters the plane and finds Steve, again carrying him from the plane to the Amazon infirmary. The writer does a really good job here of mirroring the same scene from the earlier telefilm, with the added twist that this time Diana knows who Steve is. Unlike the fight in the plane, the director shoots the moments where Diana picks Steve up very effectively, truly selling that Linda Carter is picking Steve Trevor up without straining. Nowadays, this would probably be easy to pull off. You just simply remove the wires via computer. But here, there's no evidence that wires were used, or the trolley that is presumably what is supporting actor Lyle Wagoner. Apart from one scene where Carter is clearly carrying a dummy, this is achieved quite seamlessly. Diana consults Steve's papers, and it is revealed that this Steve is Steve's son, Steve Trevor Jr., never mentioned in the World War II episodes. He has to have been alive then, as Lyle Wagoner looks much older than the 30 years old he would have to be to be conceived after the war. Under light hypnosis, Diana brings her mother, now played by Beatrice Strait, up to speed about the terrorist activity and makes her point that maybe it's time the outside world met Wonder Woman again. Strait isn't necessarily a better actress than Leachman, but she's more convincing as Carter's mum, being of slightly bigger build and possessing the same watery blue eyes. Hippolyta is not happy with sending Diana back, but is overruled by the council. However, under Amazonian rules, another Amazon can take her place if she wins the challenge of bullets and bracelets. Diana's cousin elects to take Diana on in the challenge, again mirroring the original pilot movie. Unlike the original pilot movie, this time the contest isn't as dangerous. Instead of actually trying to shoot each other, this time one Amazon has to hit a target with the gun, and the opposing Amazon has to prevent the bullet from hitting said target with their bracelets. Needless to say, Diana wins. The Amazons then set up Diana as Steve's assistant, and we're pretty much back to the same status quo as the first season, only updated for this new paradigm. So far, though, this has been pretty slow and not as interesting as the first pilot. There are a number of scenes repeated from that pilot, and in some cases this works and in others it doesn't, but there's a lot of repetition that stands out when the episodes are watched back-to-back like I did. Granted, they weren't designed to be seen that way, but it still stuck out here. As before, Wonder Woman is given her outfit, and the same explanations apply to the lasso, headband and bracelets, and again the Achilles heel of her being weakened if separated from the belt is noted. As I mentioned earlier, the redesigned costume is an improvement over the first season version. Gone are the 50s-style bullet breasts and the granny panties. The top is now moulded to Carter's own ample physique, and the trunks are tighter and cut higher up the leg to show off more of Carter's thighs. Her hair is a lighter brown as she is more tanned, and this sets off the colours of the costume better. With the new gold bracelets, as opposed to the silver ones of season one, more than ever, Linda Carter looks like she stepped off the pages of the comic book. The Amazons place the passengers back on the plane, put the plane back in the air, and then wake them up. They're none the wiser as to what has happened to them, and are oblivious to the fact that they have been missing for two days until they land in Latin America. 
So to be honest, this opening could really have done with being tightened up. A removal of a lot of the repetition from the original pilot movie would have really helped, and then we could have gotten straight into the action. It's lost the shock of the new that the original pilot film had, and with this sequel we want to be straight into Wonder Woman doing her stuff. Finally, though, we arrive at the conference and the plot is allowed to get into gear. Diana is quickly inserted into Steve's life as his new assistant, which explains an earlier line of dialogue explaining how Steve's assistant has suddenly just decided to leave and go and get married, leaving the job opening conveniently for Diana. Dr. Solano is also here as the chairperson of the meeting. What are the odds? Diana points out to Steve that Solano means nightshade in Spanish and is considered unlucky. Mm. Dr. Solano and his evil assistant Gloria then exposit about their evil plot. Some guff about Latin America being a fulcrum to the stability of the region and how Steve's power plant will stop that. And then the series takes a sharp left turn into proper 70s telly sci-fi with the introduction of a talking supercomputer called Iraq who talks like a Cylon with a head cold. Have a listen. Information retrieval computer. Diana breaks the security of the super defence facility really quite easily, making me wonder what kind of shoddy top-secret government facility we're running here, especially given that the picture on Diana's security card isn't even of Linda Carter. I'm not even convinced it's a woman. Diana breaks into the IRAC computer, implants her own background, so if anyone runs a background check on her, she's established from the get-go, which I thought was quite clever, actually. One of the improvements over the first pilot, though, is the question of money. Unlike the first movie, where Wonder Woman had to kind of figure out money herself, this time she comes prepared with a handful of gold doublons that she sells to an antique dealer for $25,000 a piece. Given that she had at least six, this gives Diana a tidy little sum, especially in 1970s money, and handily explains how she can afford her swanky apartment that we see later. Gloria follows Diana and plants a bug in her apartment, but Diana catches her and we get another cat fight, but Gloria gets away. I can't believe it's took me this long to recognise that Gloria is played by Jessica Walter, nowadays better known for being Mallory Archer on Archer and Lucille Bluth on Arrested Development. The next day, Steve and Diana are attacked by Solano's men and it's up to Wonder Woman to save the day. Steve's part of the fight is pretty much standard for the day and because Steve is a chip off the old block, he gets his head handed to him. Wonder Woman's stuff is quite cool, though. She performs some pretty impressive leaps, stunt woman Jeannie Epper's time on the Bionic Woman coming to good use, and then she manages to lift two cars off the ground to prevent the men from fleeing. She then uses her headband as a boomerang to knock over one of the thugs to question him with her lasso. Wonder Woman's appearance has Dr. Solano all in a tizzy, and she counters with a robot he happens to have in his cupboard. The robot has a particular talent for fencing, which I'm sure won't come in useful later. Dr. Solano has also created a duplicate of Steve Trevor, because this is 70s TV sci-fi. Does anyone remember when this was about a nuclear power plant? Anyway, fake Steve replaces real Steve at a party that seems to be held at the same house as the Foundation for Law and Government from Knight Rider. Fake Steve orders an Air Force raid on the Latin American location, but Diana spots that something's up when fake Steve hits on her. Apparently real Steve isn't as red-blooded as we thought. In one of the dopiest scenes in the movie, Diana flees to a room to fight off rapey Steve, changes to Wonder Woman, and then simply walks out of the French windows to come round the back of fake Steve, something he obviously never thought of when trying to get to Diana. Wonder Woman then tosses Steve's stunt double around a bit and uses her lasso to find out what's happening. The lasso now apparently makes bloopity bloop noises when used. Wonder Woman locates real Steve and after rescuing him he tries to call off the raid but they aren't falling for it. 
Wonder Woman and Steve head to the island in the invisible plane, a really shoddy-looking model, and upon arrival, Solano challenges Wonder Woman to a duel with sabers. You can guess where this is going, can't you, lovely listener? Yes, you are correct. The fencing robot from earlier is back, this time disguised as Dr. Solano. There's a pretty unspectacular fight that Wonder Woman wins because the script says she should, and Dr. Solano makes an escape. There's a cute tag at the end of this pilot movie, but for the most part this didn't hold my attention as much as the 40s set pilot. There are nice moments, and it's clear with the introduction of the fencing robot that the producers are trying to give Wonder Woman an adversary that can stretch her a bit, but this felt pretty cookie-cutter in comparison to all the other 70s superhero action shows of the time. By setting it in the war, there was something different to the show, a feel and an ideology that placed it apart from other similar shows of the times, This 70s set version didn't have that. Linda Carter is still undoubtedly the star of the show, and when my attention wandered from the plot, she was still easy on the eye. Lyle Wagoner was as big a block of wood as ever. The World War II episode made me want to watch more adventures from the first season, and I've seriously considered doing so, but this didn't make me think that the 70s set episodes will be really worth my time. Maybe I'll have a Google search and have a look at recommended episodes rather than watching all of them. I understand Frank Gorshin's in one, and Gorshin's always good value. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Uh, only one email in the sack, which depresses me. But, you know, well, you take what you can get. And it's uh, from Chris and Cindy Franklin, which means it's probably from Chris. Uh, Lee Ditko Round 3 starts off with, Hello, Andy. Starting off the new year with some Lee Ditko love is a great thing. Beginning with this era of the title, or the reprints in Marvel Tales, actually, I can remember where I was when I bought them, so it goes to show how much of an impact they had on me. I understand where you're coming from in regards to the Green Goblin. His mad-on for Spidey seems shaky at best, especially upon examining his first appearance, which is probably the weakest of all the major Spidey rogues. But I grew up with way too many pieces of Spidey merchandise that depicted the Goblin as THE Spider-Man bad guy. Plus, I witnessed Spidey battle the Goblin live in a Hills department store appearance when I was five years old, so that clinched it. Imagine my surprise when I found out the Goblin, the real one, was dead during the whole time I was <clears throat> gobbling up all of these toys and comics. Now, see, Chris, you can't throw out, though, that you saw Spider-Man battle the Green Goblin live and then not follow up and tell me how that occurred. I presume it was some, like, in-departmental store thing, but in my head, they are now whipping and zipping about above your heads and there's pumpkin bombs flying everywhere and people are fleeing for the exits. Probably wasn't like that at all, really, was it? But, you know... 
In my head, that's what it was. Chris continues, you've got to love that first Amazing Spider-Man annual, and the creators are still aping Ditko's awesome splashes. Alan Davis took that approach with each hero in Justice League of America, Benail, giving every major leaguer a splash page to vanquish their foe. I remember the secrets of Spidey being reprinted in one of my earliest Spider-Man comics, Marvel Tales 100. I was obsessed with those pages, my first introduction to Ditko's Spidey. A particular interest was how Spidey's mask lenses worked. Go figure. I seem to recall DeFalco had May's favourite show change from the Beverly Hillbillies to the Dukes of Hazard in Marvel Tales 150 reprint of Annual 1. Makes as much sense of any other then contemporary show. Speaking of Marvel Tales, I recall my parents bought a 1978 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme the day I picked up Marvel Tales issue 155 off the stands. It reprinted Amazing Spider-Man issue 17, and I agree it's probably the strongest story of this lot, and perhaps the quintessential Lee Ditko issue. That car eventually became my first car, so lots of good memories tied into that comic and story. Looking forward to the rest of your examinations, and hope you continue on with Lee and Romita. Chris. Well, it is very typical of Chris to uh, to leave it with that, that lovely little nugget at the end. First off, I think his story about the Green Goblin solidifies my theory that he became the main adversary retroactively, rather than anything from the comics themselves. I honestly think that the whole mystery of who he was, and then the fact that he discovered Peter's secret was what elevated him up the ranks of, of serious rogues. Whereas prior to that, he kind of just wanted to be a mob boss. He was basically Tony Soprano in a, a funny outfit. Carrying on to Lee Romita, though, that's that's a very intriguing notion. And uh, I'm just going to throw that out to the audience. Would that be of interest to you? Doing irregular palace shows devoted to Spider-Man, like we've done now, or maybe just cover one issue per show, irrespective of what else I cover? Because one of the things that was uppermost in my mind when I decided to do this Lee Ditko retrospective was I didn't want it to feel like an index show. So I wasn't interested in covering letters, pages, and adverts, and bullpen bulletins, and all the other stuff that you normally do in an index show. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in covering these stories, and how I still think that they hold up as solid entertainment, solid examples of the genre, and how I still think that they are the finest superhero comics that have ever been published. But I also just wanted to talk about them and how about how they made you feel, about the emotions involved, about how the the creators of that particular run managed to create a character who resonated with his audience, but they managed to do so in, in such a way that was completely different to anything else that was going on at the time. But certainly carrying on to, to Lee, Ramuta, Lee Ramita sorry, is very intriguing and interesting to me, and I'm certainly not averse to the notion. It's just a case of how would I do it when I carry on, like I say, with these irregular ones or one per show or whatever how would how would you like me to look at it if you would maybe you're not enjoying these ones I, I don't know anyway so thanks for the suggestion Chris that's food for thought as usual and that closes this particular episode I hope you enjoyed it I very much enjoyed this one I enjoyed watching some Wonder Woman so that was fun um, as usual you can go on the Two True Freaks page and go through the Amazon link to give us a kickback cost you nothing and if you want to email me about this show or anything in particular, you just want to chat, that's fine. Now on Facebook as me, Andrew Leyland. I'm on Twitter as Leyland underscore Andrew. And if you want to email the show, so you can you can be on it and we can converse like this, like I've just done with Chris, um, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time.
Namaste. My name is Stella, and I host Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I, along with my dear friend Donovan Morgan Grant, are going to be hosting a special Backroll to Oracle episode called The Minority Report. I'm putting the call out right now for anyone that identifies himself or herself as a minority to have a discussion centering around this question. Are minorities portrayed properly in media? Now, Donovan Morgan Grant and I will be leading this discussion and would like your input. So whatever your nationality, ethnicity, gender identification, or sexual orientation, if you are interested in being a part of this conversation, please contact me at backroadoracle at gmail.com. This discussion will take place in early 2016. Heterosexual white males need not apply. Thank you, and I look forward to hearing from you. Oh, but who they judge us Simply call